Psalm 46. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariot with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is a song written by the sons of Korah. And what you may not have known prior to now is that this is the writing that came about by the eyewitnesses, the sons of Korah, as they saw Sennacherib and his army besiege Jerusalem. This is the psalm that takes us to that place. You say, why did we read Isaiah 36, 37? Because it's context for this. The point of this song by the sons of Korah is to reflect on God's glory and his power in overcoming Sennacherib and his army and to remind the people that their God is above all other gods. In fact, there's 25 songs that are attributed to the sons of Korah. This particular song, remembering that it is a song this morning, consists of three stanzas and a refrain or a chorus. The three stanzas you'll see there are separated by the little word Selah. You see that? The end of verse 3, the end of verse 7, and the end of verse 11. The word Selah. Which, by the way, is a musical pause. It is a moment of reflection in the music before us. The refrain or the chorus in this song is often the congregational response. The singers would sing the verses and then the call and response, the congregation would respond with the chorus together. And the chorus is found in verse 7 and 11. And this is what it says. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So it might go something like this. As the singer, I would sing, the nations rage, the kingdoms tot, he utters his voice, the earth melts. Verse 7, you would all come back and say, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And then again at the end of this particular song, 
After I have said, be still and know that I, that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth. The congregation would respond by saying, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Psalm 46 was Martin Luther's favorite psalm. And he would often quote it during the turbulent times of the Reformation. In fact, the song, A Mighty Fortress, is based upon Psalm 46. As we look at this song together this morning, it is essential that you keep at the forefront of your mind Sennacherib and the Assyrian army as it besieges Jerusalem. And you will see it will just dovetail incredibly together as we look at it uh, together this morning. And then the victory that was had by God's people. Before I, I guess, officially preach through the text, I need to give you some uh, some background. I need to set the scene. And it's really important. It might take a few moments, but it's going to be worth it, I believe. So here's the summary. Sennacherib became the king of Assyria in 705 BC. There were major revolts taking place in Babylon, which he very quickly subdued. After a number of minor wars in various areas, Sennacherib turned his attention to Syria and Palestine. He quickly conquered the various provinces and established kings and rulers, all which paid tribute to his own kingdom. A very clever situation. He left the kings there, gave them power, but enforced them to be allies of his and to pay tribute to him. So his empire continues to build. Very, very clever schematics in war. History tells us that Sennacherib captured 46 of the strong cities of Hezekiah that we read of in the scripture. 46 of them. And he took 200,150 prisoners from Israel. 200,150. In the British Museum, if you go there today, there lies in a glass case something called the prism of Sennacherib. It's also called Taylor's Cylinder. It is a very, very well-preserved artifact that lists the many conquests of Sennacherib. You can look at it online sometime. It was discovered by Colonel Taylor in 1830 in Nineveh, which was the ancient capital of the Assyrian Empire. This discovery, this prism of Sennacherib or Taylor's cylinder, gives us a great deal more light on this situation in the scriptures because it was written by Sennacherib about his conquests. Let me read you something from the prism of Sennacherib, written by Sennacherib. He says, As for Hezekiah, the Judaite, who did not submit to my yoke, 46 of his strong walled cities, as well as the small towns in their area, which were without number, by leveling with battering rams and by bringing up siege engines and by attacking and storming on foot by mines, tunnels and breaches, I besieged and took them. 200,150 people, great and small, male and female, horses, mules, asses, camels, cattle and sheep without number, I brought away from them and counted as spoil. Hezekiah himself, like a caged bird, I shut up in Jerusalem. 
his royal city. I threw up earthworks against him. The one coming out of the city gate, I turned back to his misery. His cities which I had despoiled, I cut off from his land. And to Mittenti, king of Ashdod, Paddy, king of Ekron and Silibel, it's a bit of a strange name, Silibel, king of Gaza, I gave them. And thus I diminished his land. I added to the former tribute and I laid upon him the surrender of their land and imposts, gifts for my majesty. As for Hezekiah, the terrifying splendor of my majesty overcame him. Everybody following still? And the Arabs and his mercenary troops, which he had brought in to strengthen Jerusalem, his royal city deserted him. In addition to the 30 talents of gold and 800 talents of silver, gems, antimony, jewels, large carnelians, ivory inlaid couches, ivory uh, inlaid chairs, elephant hides, elephant tusks, ebony boxwood, all kinds of valuable treasures, as well as his own daughters, his harem, his male and female musicians, which he had brought after me to Nineveh, my royal city, to pay tribute and to accept servitude, he dispatched his messengers. That's a summary of Sennacherib's understanding of what happened with Hezekiah. And it's uh, accurate as we see in other places of historical uh, literature. Here's some more information just before we commence. And it is relevant. Sennacherib was the greatest ruler on earth at this time. And he was entirely committed to bringing down Jerusalem. Hezekiah had already paid tribute to this heathen king, but that was not enough. In the year 701 BC, um, Sennacherib and his army besieged Jerusalem and the goal was to enforce their surrender or to starve them out. Sennacherib had made mincemeat of every other nation that opposed him and Jerusalem was next in line. So I'm still not convinced this really doesn't mean all that much to me yet. There is absolutely nothing physically possible that Hezekiah and his people could do to impede the onslaught of Sennacherib. And here's why. The Babylonian Talmud, the writings, record the following about Sennacherib and his, and his army. It consists of 45,000 princes, each in a golden chariot. 80,000 clad in a coat of mail. 60,000 swordsmen and many horsemen. That's a fairly strong army. That's 185,000 plus people besieging Jerusalem. However, here is what Hezekiah prays, as I read before in Isaiah 37. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. With all of that as backdrop, I hope you've got the picture. I hope you have a picture in your mind of the city of Jerusalem totally besieged by 185,000 men, hordes of armies that are just ready and ready to absolutely destroy Jerusalem. With that as the backdrop, I want you to hear the song of victory here written by the sons of Korah, who very likely were eyewitnesses. And here is the message I want to preach today. It's entitled, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Father, I 
Thank you for uh, your word. I thank you for all that we are told in it. Thank you, Lord, that secular historical documents again prove its accuracy time and time again. Uh, And Lord, as we look at this particular song, Psalm 46, uh, Lord, whether we get through it all or not, I don't know. I leave that with you. Uh, But I pray that uh, it would be so helpful to us uh, as we consider that a mighty fortress is our God. Thank you for the reminders and for the teaching you've given to me personally, that which has needed to be applied and continues uh, to be applied. I pray you'd uh, help these as they listen, uh, that, Lord, this would uh, penetrate hearts and encourage and challenge as necessary. And I leave those results and work with you in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said before, the song is broken up into three verses, and that's how we're going to break it up uh, this morning if we get through it all. Stanza number one. This is the point and this is what it's called. God's assured protection and power. Verse one of our song before us is God's assured protection and power. Verses one through three. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Firstly, just a a little point of order that's interesting. Sometimes we ignore the start of each psalm that says things like to the choir master. Most of us skip over that if we're honest, right? We don't actually look at that and give it a great deal of detail. But look at the word according to Alamoth. For those musicians in our room, that literally means this is the soprano line. So this was a song designed for those who have high-pitched voices. So this was soprano or falsetto. All right. So this is a song of joy and praise and exuberance because it was designed for those who have higher voices. uh, And it was not to be a drone. That's not the point of this particular song. I want you to note the very first word and we're going to take it. Uh, Sometimes word by word or verse by verse, the very first word in both the English and the Hebrew is the word God. God. Elohim, the ruler, the judge, the mighty one. I love that it begins with God. Sennacherib and his army, they've besieged the city and they are God to themselves. We read about it in Isaiah. He thinks that no God can withstand him. He's destroyed every other God in the past. And he hear the sons of Korah begin by saying, God, not your God, not the gods that have been destroyed in the fire, but Elohim, the mighty judge, the one who's on the throne. It all begins with God. And I think there is a real point to this for us this morning. And there was for me this week. It is all about God. All, not part. It's when he is not first and foremost that everything else goes wrong, isn't it? I know that in my own life, when he is not the priority, when he is not number one, then we have a problem. You see, God is the first word of our spiritual song too, is he not? Our spiritual song only came about because God instigated the song, our spiritual song. Without him, we have nothing. He is first in chronology and he ought to be first in priority, God. But notice what he says, God is our refuge. Without taking too long on each word, the word is, present tense, it's not future, it's not past. God is this. 
He is right now and he will continue to be is that Hebrew word there. It's not God was or God will be. It is God is. And that's crucial for us to understand because whatever this uh, psalmist wants to tell us, it's that it is a present continuous reality. And what is that reality? Our, O-U-R, possessive plural pronoun, not just yours, not just mine, but ours. God is our collective. It's a, uh, a possessional belonging aspect uh, and those of us who are the Lord's, and we know that this relates directly to us. God is our refuge. Refuge. There's a beautiful word. This word refuge speaks of a place to which we run and find shelter. God is the one to whom we run and find shelter. God is our refuge. Another song, chapter 61 and verse 3 says, For you have been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. Solomon writes in Proverbs 18 verse 10, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. And is safe. I don't know what you are facing this morning. I don't know what your week has been like. But the problem that I've had all week is that I have not been willing to run to the God who is my refuge. I have preferred rather to stay out in the the hail and the rain when there's been all sorts of problems going on. Staying out there like a fool when I ought to be running to the refuge. And if you're anything like me, we are guilty of doing that. We sometimes are prepared to stay in the elements and sit there and just sit and soak and sour and even burn if necessary, depending on what the elements are, when God says, I'm the refuge, why won't you run to me? I'm your refuge. The point of this relationship between you and I is that you would run to me. And when we run to him, do we not find an incredible refuge? Do we not find an incredible shelter? God is our refuge. Our protection, but he's also our strength. God is our refuge and strength. He is not simply a place of shelter, but he's also a place of empowerment. Did you get that? He's not simply a place to which I run and hide, but he is also a place, a person who empowers me to be able to stand, to be able to fight, to be able to deal with the situation around about me it's not just a place of shelter but a place of empowerment and this word strength deals with the subject of might power energy boldness the new testament principle of this same concept is found in ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10 finally be strong in the lord and in the power of his might see we have no might i have no might We think we do. We think that we have the wherewithal to be able to uh, stand against the enemy. We think that we have the the ability and the strength to stand against our own sin and against the flesh and the world. We think we can do that, but in reality we must run. We must hide for shelter to our great refuge and strong tower and find empowerment there. Anything else will be flesh-based. Bible tells us God is our refuge and strength. And then he says a very interesting thing, a very present help in trouble. This unique phrase is emphatic 
And it means this, a powerful and effective aid that is easily accessible. Let me say that again. When we say a very present help in trouble, in the Hebrew, we're dealing with this, a powerful and effective aid that is easily accessible. In other words, God is not distant. He is not handicapped in any way. He is available and all-powerful. Some people paint our God like someone who enjoys making people find it difficult to find him. That's not what the Bible teaches. He is a very present, he is a very ready and desirous. It's a little bit like this. He stands, if you will, as an image, he stands here as the shelter, as the rock, as the strong tower, and he awaits and calls and woos us with his love to come abide in his shelter. But because of rebellion and our heart's attitude, we say, no, I don't want to do that. And yet he says, he's not hiding. He's not hiding. And when we look in the scriptures, we find that the people who hide are always the humans, never God. Adam and Eve, God comes to the garden like he always has. And Adam and Eve say, let's sew some fig leaves together and hide from the face of our God. It's always we who want to hide from him, never he who wants to hide from us. That's a very important deep theological truth. Because when we say things like, I can't find God. Well, it's not because he can't be found. It must be because you're looking in the wrong place. Because God is easily accessible. In fact, um, Luke tells us that the, the God is everywhere and he's very near to those. He's very nearby. All we have to do is reach out and find him and touch him and draw near to him, the Bible says. And yet many times our very present help in trouble is one that we flee from rather than flee to. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Notice verse number two, again in this first stanza. Therefore, we will not fear. In other words, because God is our refuge, because God is our strength, and because God is at the ready to move in on behalf of his people, we have no reason to fear. Did you know that the only time that fear is permitted in the Bible in the sense of consternation, fear, a trembling fear, is when an individual does not have God as their refuge and strength. That's the only time we're allowed to fear. And you say, how do you know that? Hebrews 10.31 says this, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. If God is not your refuge, if you are not truly in Christ, then you have good reason to fear. Because the Bible also tells us, the Lord Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The only reason we ever have to fear is if we are not in the very hands of Almighty God, if we are not His. As a Christian, there is never a time where we are to be controlled by fear, even though we are. And even though often we are fearful of many, many things. The only time we can ever fear as a Christian is when God is no longer on the throne. And that's never. The disciples were prone to fear and the Lord constantly reminded them to simply believe and exercise faith and dependence upon him, didn't he? 
constantly. He would say, have faith in God. He'd say, trust me. Where is your faith? He would say. Therefore, we will not fear. See, if we get verse 1 right, the rest of this song functions completely. If we'll understand that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble, we will never fear. There will never be any of these other circumstances that that, uh, arise in the rest of this song when we get verse 1 down. And that's why we're spending so much time on this particular verse. But I want you to notice that the sons of Korah give us some interesting thoughts here. He says, therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There are three cataclysmic catastrophes mentioned here. Notice them in verse two and three. There's the earthquake. The earth gives way and the mountains tremble at its swelling. The second one is a landslide, though the mountains be moved into the sea. And the third is an ocean storm or a flood where the waters roar and foam. These are pretty major events, are they not? These are serious events in the life of any person. Can you imagine being in the midst of an earthquake or a landslide or an ocean storm or flood? A serious event. And he picks three cataclysmic catastrophes and says, these would ordinarily cause you fear, but when God is your refuge and your strength, you have no reason to fear. Now, I will just add here that some commentators believe, because we're dealing with Sennacherib as the backdrop, that uh, these three cataclysmic events are types of something else, political types or, or armies and so forth. And that may well be true, but the scripture doesn't clearly state that. So let me leave them as a cataclysmic catastrophe that could have another meaning, although we're not told in the scripture. Here is the all-surpassing truth found here. There is nothing. Brethren, there is nothing that can shake the one whose trust is in the Lord. The most violent, turbulent, catastrophic, cataclysmic events and commotions cannot uproot the righteous one whose hope is entirely in the Lord. We can say with the apostle in the New Testament, what shall we say to these things? If God before us, who or what could be against us? Romans 8.31. In fact, the writer of Hebrews reminds us that God demands faith. And when it is exercised, this is what the writer says, kingdoms are conquered, justice is enforced, promises are obtained, the mouths of lions are stopped, the power of fire is quenched, the edge of the sword is escaped, the weaker strength and foreign armies are put to flight, the dead are resurrected and giants are toppled. What an incredible series of events occurs when we exercise total and absolute faith in God as our refuge and our strength. What is the application for this first verse, this first stanza? There is nothing in Satan's arsenal that can defeat the Lord's elect. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Christian God is your refuge and strength, a present, powerful, available aid in trouble. Just remember, again, let me bring it to the forefront The nation of Israel face at this moment behind the scenes here an insurmountable army. Forty-six of our cities have already been destroyed. Two hundred odd thousand captured. 
We haven't got a hope against 185,000 with chariots. We don't even have chariots at this time, Israel. The greatest empire on earth besieged them. And yet God came through in wondrous ways. And so the challenge is, fear not, the Lord is on your side. God's assured protection and power, seen in verse 1. Verse 2, our second stanza. I want you to know God's abiding presence. Verses 4 through 7 read, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. A strange change has just occurred. Cataclysmic events, we've been told God is our refuge and then suddenly out of nowhere, verse number two comes in, there is a river. Not a turbulent river, not a swelling river. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. In the midst of all of this turmoil that is occurring all around them, there is a river. And the streams make the people glad. Insurmountable armies, violent disruptions, and for some unknown reason, or at least it would seem that way, the sons of Korah provide us with a picture of serenity and joy. Do you see that in the text? There's been a real change here. There is a river. There is a place of joy and gladness in spite of all that is happening around us. This is interesting because this second stanza begins inside the walls of Jerusalem, not outside them. There's all sorts of things going on outside, but inside the walls of Jerusalem. There's something unique occurring. There is peace within. Now, when you do a study of history and when you do a study of this time in Jerusalem, there is no direct river in Jerusalem. And so it is agreed by scholars generally, and I would agree with this myself, that this is a metaphorical statement. This is not a river physically that is flowing through Jerusalem with various streams and rivulets coming off it. It is a word picture. And it implies that true satisfaction and joy is found in God's presence and let me show you in the text how we get there he says there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God the holy habitation of the most high it's connected with that first phrase God is in the midst of her she shall not be moved God will help her everything is pointing to the presence of God and so I suggest to us this morning that this river here is not a physical river and these streams are not physical streams of water but they are in fact the direct presence of almighty God in the midst of the city that despite cataclysmic events despite the armies of Sennacherib despite all that is happening outside the walls there is an incredible sense of joy and peace for one reason God's abiding presence is within the walls the river is none other than God himself The blessings and the attributes of his character are like the streams which minister to us in specific ways. 
In fact, you, when you take your Bible and you look at rivers and streams right throughout, you find that it is often a picture of God. Psalm 36 and verse 8, the psalmist writes, They feast on the abundance of your house, speaking of God, and you give them drink from the river of your delights, speaking of God. In Isaiah 33:21, But there the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams. Where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. And then in the New Testament, was it not the Lord Jesus who said, but whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But the water that I will give him will be in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. There is no question in my mind whatsoever that this is dealing with the absolute presence of God. And look at what it says as we continue. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. In verse 5, God will help her when morning dawns. In history, we know that Jerusalem was the place of God's direct presence. And because of this, she would never be taken by any enemy. Though hordes of vicious men encamped about the city of Zion, they would never gain the victory for the Lord is on her side. Now, it's true, Hezekiah had lost some cities. Captives had been taken, but the kingdom could not be conquered. And I want to suggest to us this morning as we make application, the same is true for the New Testament church. There are some spiritual cities which lie desolate. They were at one time great places of truth. They're desolate now. There are some churches that are weak and their light has almost extinguished. Some of us may be familiar with those. And there are some prisoners of war who have been taken captive. But the kingdom of God remains. And though the hosts of hell encamp us and the wicked would seek our demise, yet we remain for one reason. God is with us. God is in the midst of the city and it will never be conquered. In fact, I love this hymn, how firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, you who unto Jesus for refuge have fled, the soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose. I will not, I will not desert to his foes, that soul though all hell should endeavour to shake. I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Friends, the truth is some cities have been captured. Some places have been laid desolate by the enemy. That's true. There's some prisoners of war. There's some who are captured at this point in time by the devil, as the scripture says, not in that they are his, but in that they have surrendered. They put up a white flag spiritually and they're not walking as they ought before the Lord. But the kingdom of God remains because God is in the midst of her. God empowers her. God is here. It cannot be conquered. We notice in verse five that God will help her when morning dawns and here we see an incredible parallel when we get to the story of Sennacherib the sons of Korah here remind the people that God came through in a mighty way 
the next morning. Isaiah 37 verse 36, we read it before, don't turn there, let me read it. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. It's, it's a fairly amazing story, isn't it? And you know what I think is quite interesting? I think that it's interesting that nowhere on the cylinder and, uh, and nowhere on the prism did uh, Sennacherib say, and uh, one morning I rode off on my horse after 185,000 of my men had been destroyed. Well, that doesn't look so good on the prism. But yet the Bible tells us that that is what happened the next morning. I want to just remind us by way of application, we live in final days of apostasy and evil. And one day the sun is going to set on this era and it will rise with a new king. And that king is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And so we see that sometimes we may feel like we are wrestling in the dark. Sometimes weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And we see that God does an incredible work in the life of the Jews here, but also in our own lives. And we must endure through the hard times. In Psalm 46 and verse 6, we continue. The Bible says the nations rage and the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. Again, the author points back to this Assyrian conquest. The nations raged. That is, they were in tumult. Now, this is not talking about Israel. This is talking, Sennacherib has already done a whole lot of conquering. We know that, right? So the, the nations are raging. They are in tumult. There is enormous things going on. Everyone everywhere is being destroyed by this king, Sennacherib, with his 185,000 uh, persons that are destroying. And there's a great commotion in the land. And the Bible says the kingdoms totter. Another way to say that would be a shaken or reshuffled. All the kings are being destroyed of the land. Everyone's in turmoil. You get the picture? Sennacherib's coming through and the whole of the land, the empire is being destroyed. New kings are being raised up. Old kings are being destroyed. Everybody is in total tumult. And all the while, Sennacherib believes that he is the source of this great power. Let me again, if I may, read a quote for you from Taylor's cylinder, the prism. This is what Sennacherib writes about himself. Sennacherib, the great king, the mighty king, king of all the world, king of Assyria, king of the four quarters, the wise shepherd, favoured and favourite of the gods, guardian of right, lover of justice, who lends support, who comes to the aid of the destitute, who performs pious acts, perfect hero, mighty man, first among all the princes, the powerful one who consumes the insubmissive, who strikes the wicked with the thunderbolt, the god Asser, the great mountain and unrivaled kinship has entrusted to me, and above all those who dwell in the palaces has made powerful my weapons, from the upper sea of the setting sun to the lower sea of the rising sun. He has brought the black-headed people in submission at my feet, and mighty kings feared my warfare, leaving their homes and flying alone like the Sidunu, the bird of the cave, to some inaccessible place. I think he thinks that he's something. And yet look at what the text here 
says. Very, very interesting. The nations are raging. The kingdoms are tottering. That's all true. Sennacherib, wow, you're an incredible man, so to speak. But look at what the next thing says. He utters his voice, the earth melts. Now, don't be mistaken. This is not Sennacherib uttering his voice and the earth melts. This is God of gods uttering his voice and the earth melts. This is what is being said to us here. Unbeknown to Sennacherib, it was God who gave him the victory. It was God who was enabling him to do anything whatsoever. It speaks of God's great power. Isaiah 40, all the nations of the earth are as nothing before him. He taketh up us like little dust. We're like grasshoppers, the Bible says. The psalmist is again painting a picture. He's not here referring to the literal earth as much as to the kingdoms in it. In other words, God's word, when it is spoken, kingdoms are established and demolished. At his commands, empires are formed and dissolved. Sennacherib thinks he's something, but in actual fact, all that he has ever had is God's authority and ability to perform what he's done. Because when he utters his voice, the whole thing is dissolved. The earth melts. And then we come to the chorus in verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Sometimes we uh, quickly move over some of these titles given to the Lord. The Lord of hosts speaks of his commanding of an army. And this army is the heavenly host. Our God is the Lord of the heavenly host, not just the physical armies of the world, but the heavenly host. We need to understand that the Lord of hosts, a reference to God's spiritual army, is with us. The Lord of hosts is with us. He is on our side. But let me just say it in a better way. We are on his side. Yes, he's on our side, but a better way to put that is we are on his side. So he didn't join us. We enlisted into his army at his calling. He didn't come alongside of us. We came to him. And then he says, the God of Jacob is our fortress. This means a great deal. Church, we need to understand this comment. The God of Jacob is our fortress. You know what this means? This means this is the covenant Keeping God, the God of Jacob, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of Jacob is our fortress. The proof here is that he has already demonstrated his proven worth over many, many years. And here he says again, I'm the covenant keeping God, the Lord of hosts who has an incredible army is on our side, but also the covenant keeping God who was with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob is our fortress. Um, Church, this tells us today that the same God who was the fortress for these people is our fortress today. And that when the enemies of darkness and when the enemies would come up and conspire against us and besiege us and besiege the kingdom of God, we have no reason to fear because here we have the God of Jacob, the God of Joseph, the God of Noah, the God of all those other incredible patriarchs and the New Testament, the God of Paul, uh, the God of James, all of those same people. This is the same God for us today and he is our fortress. We must remember that. 
proven worth. He will keep his promises. And at this point, the psalmist inserts the little word Selah, that we would stop, that we would ponder before we continue to sing. Verse 3, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. Stop and pause, he says. It would do us well to stop and pause and think some more about the fact that the Lord of hosts is with us and the God of Jacob is our fortress. Finally, as we close, I want to give you the third stanza, the final stanza. We had God's abiding presence as the second verse, and as we enter verse 3, we now see God's acknowledged preeminence. God's acknowledged preeminence. Psalm 46 and verse 8, the sons of Korah say, Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has wrought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear, burns the chariot with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth. And in the chorus, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. It's interesting to note, I think that the final stanza in this song begins with an invitation. Come and behold. Come and see. Come and see the desolations that the Lord has wrought upon the earth. And by desolations we mean astonishments and wonders, ruinations and appallments. It's a a powerful word. Come and view what God has done. Come and see his enormous power at work. Come and view how great this God really is. He says, come and have a look. He's already told you he's your refuge. He's already said, I'm with you. And now he says, now come and look. Come and see, behold. And by the way, we don't use the word behold very well today. When the word behold in the scripture is there, that is not just come and see, it is stop and ponder and wonder in amazement at something. When when John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God, he didn't mean, look, there he is. He meant, everybody, stop, pause. This is the one to whom you must look as the only Lamb of God. And here we have, behold the works of the Lord. Stop, wait, see, be confronted by these incredible works that God has done. And what is what are they referring to here? There's 185,000 men scattered across this panorama of uh, Israel and Jerusalem here. Slain bodies, and and the thought might um, cause us to go, I don't think I'd like to see that. But the reality is, the power of God at work, the angel of the Lord has just come and destroyed the whole... What is man? What is man to God? Come and behold the works of God. I wonder if you can, for just a moment before we finish, can you imagine that you are stopped up in Jerusalem... You cannot go out. You cannot do anything that you'd normally do out of the city. You are besieged by 185,000 in their gleaming armor. They are ferocious about killing and destroying you. And you go to bed that night and wonder, probably like you have for the last few nights, perhaps while it's been besieged, and think, I wonder if tonight they're going to get through the city. 
and it'll be the end. I wonder if my family is going to survive the night. I wonder if my children are going to survive the night. There would be some questions every time you go to bed. There'd be some tired Israelites, don't you think? I don't think I'd sleep very well. And then on this particular occasion, they get up early and I think we'd be up early. I wonder what they've done. I wonder what they've, had they made it through the wall yet? And here's 185,000 corpses. I mean, we've got, what, 30 people here? 185,000. And in the distance is a king on a horse riding back to Nineveh. The only one who survives out of this entire army. God showed himself strong. He broke the bow. He shattered the spears of the Assyrians. And these finite instruments of war, this was the greatest instrument at the time of war, these golden chariots that the Assyrians had. They were known all throughout the known empire at that time. Beware of the Assyrian chariots. Beware of their spears and their bows. Beware of what uh, they have by way of instruments of war. Someone might say today, well, those were vintage weapons. Today we've got nuclear power. Surely can God stand against that? Nuclear power is nothing. Nothing. It's just like the chariots of that day. It's just like the spears, the vintage spears and the bows. These, what we have today, we, some people are so worried about, well, what about this nuclear power? God is much, much, much greater and stronger than anything that we could ever invent. Dear friend, all the might and the power of man cannot stand for one moment in the presence of Almighty God. And then we come to Psalm 46 and verse 10 which is the climax of the message. And it was this one, this verse that brought me undone this week. It was this verse that caused me to be reminded that though there may be some discouragements, though there may be some armies gathering against me, though there may be my own flesh that I am wrestling with, here is the call, the climactic truth. Here is the summit of truth for consideration. Be still and know. That I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Now, I know you've listened long and hard and I appreciate that, but I just need you to focus on this one thought here before we conclude the whole message. Notice what happens in this verse. Nowhere else in the whole of the psalm is there the personal pronoun. Suddenly, be still and know that I am God. This is not the sons of Korah. This is God himself somehow. And I don't know exactly how this works, but this is personal. This is not the sons of Korah saying, be still and know that he is God. This is God answering in a great way. And I would suggest to you that this is what God said specifically back there at Sennacherib's day. And he's reminding them. Remember when God said, just be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted among the earth. Here we have, we have the very words of God in front of us, we know that. But here we have, in, in one sense, something that's even more majestic. This is God speaking for God directly, and it's recorded in the word for us to consider today. Be still. He says to those in Zion, be still. He says to Daniel Chris in December 2015, just be still. I've got this. 
I'm in control here. Don't try and do it yourself. And it's very interesting when you look at this word be still, it literally means to let go. Let go. Slacken your hand. Cease from your exertion. Stop trying. That's really hard. Because we as human beings, are we not the kind of people who say, I can do this. I can do this. Uh, We live in a macho culture today, don't we? We live in a culture where, you know, I think I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps and we fall into this culture and God says time and time again, would you please stop? Stop trying. Your exertion is a waste of time. Your power is useless. You have none of that if it's not mine. So would you just stop? And be still. In this context, it literally means leave these matters with God. Stop attempting to accomplish things by your own might. In fact, in the very next book of Jeremiah, God says this in chapter 17, verses 5 to 7. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. Whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Let me say this to us. Great things happen when we're still. Great things happen when we exercise faith in the Lord couple of quick examples before we finish do you remember there they are the Israelites before a great body of water called the Red Sea an insurmountable problem there is no way and and please it was not four foot high like some people would say we're talking about a sea we're talking about something that is in a serious problem that we cannot face the Egyptians are behind us and we have no hope whatsoever with mountains either side we're going to be destroyed here Pharaoh is coming And you know what the Lord says to Moses and Moses says to the people, fear not, stand back and see the salvation of the Lord, for he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never again see the Lord will fight for you. Only be silent. It's actually really interesting. It's not in any translation, but that Hebrew word is really shut up. And we don't like to tell our children to say that necessarily, but that's what it literally means. Would you please just close your mouth? Stop trying to figure this out. This is not possible. You cannot do anything. Just stand back and watch me work is what God says. And I love it. I love it when the majesty and the glory of God turns around and says, Daniel, Chris, would you please stop it? Just stop. Let me work. Because while you're trying, you are impeding what I want to accomplish We see another instance with another great army, and I'll just quickly mention it. You might recall Jehoshaphat. A greater army than that which we're looking at here is gathering against him from nations all over the world, and they are coming towards Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat says, Lord, our eyes are upon you. Only you can do this great work. And in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 17, this is what God says. You do not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm. Hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Tomorrow you will go out against them, but the Lord will be with you. Again, the Lord says, just stand back. Just wait. 
Just watch. I've got this one. He says, be still and know that I am God. What does it mean to know that he is God? One commentator says this, understand that he is the fountain of power, of all wisdom, of all justice, of all goodness, of all good truth. He's omnipotent, he's immutable, he's omniscient, he's sovereign, he's above all. And so as we close, here is our application church for us today. I want to conclude this message with a challenge to be still and know that he is God during the busyness of this season. During the frivolity of this season. During the mammoth retail sales and the signboards and the advertisements and the hustle and the bustle. I want to remind you how important it is for you to be still and know that he is God in the midst of what may be difficult family encounters over the next couple of weeks. I want to remind you how important it is for you to be still and know that he is God when you read on the news that there have been more fatalities on the road, where there have been a greater suicide level, where there's been higher physical abuse, where there's been rape, where there's been alcoholics doing all sorts of crazy things, when there's been angry drivers, when there's been all kinds of things and we can very quickly enter the culture and be in that same hustle and bustle. And for me, the thing that I must learn, that I am seeking to learn, particularly at this time, is to be still and know that he is God. And that he has made a promise. It was true back in Sennacherib's day and it's true for us. He will be exalted among the nations. He will be exalted in the earth. I look around sometimes. I read the news every day. And I am aghast at all that is occurring in this world. But I am reminded again. He will be exalted among the nations. Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it is going to occur. And we look forward with joy and hope to know that at any instant it may all be over. It may all be finished. And we may be with the Lord. And we say as the final chorus in Psalm 46 and verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. Today, 2015, nearly 2016, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The final chorus is simply this. He is with us. The God of heavenly hosts and the great covenant keeper. Selah. Pause, ponder and think. A mighty fortress is our God. Father, thank you for strength and enablement to Open your word to teach through it. Lord, there is so much more that could have been said. uh, But I thank you, Lord, that uh, you have given words and strength needed to to share uh, what you have been teaching me this last week. And I pray that it would be uh, helpful and beneficial to each of us. I pray that uh, we would be reminded that you truly are the fortress to to which we run, the shelter, the strong tower. Uh, that you are the abiding presence with us in the city, though all about we may be besieged. There is a river and the streams that make us glad. They produce joy uh, as we taste and see that the Lord is good. Uh, And then finally, to have you preeminent, to have you as uh, acknowledged as our great God, the one to whom we come, the one 
before which we are to be still and know that you are God. Thank you that in time you will be exalted among the nations, uh, that you will be seen and understood and it will be worth it all when we see Christ. We thank you that the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Help us to pause and to ponder and to consider the reality of this truth. In Jesus' name, amen.